Podcastle 226 for September 18th, 2012. The Hand of God by Erica Satifka. Rated R. Contains disturbing imagery and drug use. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle, and welcome to part two of our very special not annual Shroom Weeks. I'm Dave Thompson, your host and co-editor. Now, long-time listeners will know that I'm a fan of something I've dubbed spiritual noir. This is not St. Peter wandering around the dark alleys of Jerusalem wearing a trench coat and fedora carrying a 9mm while the cock crows in the background, although that would be cool. No, what I'm talking about are stories that deal with spiritual themes, or events, and are all shades of gray. A story that doesn't necessarily give you pat answers so much as poised questions. And today's Twilight Zone-ish story is really a pitch-perfect example of it. Here's what author Erica Satifka told us about it. The hand of God shows up often in art, usually as a sign of blessings. This story imagines a world where religious iconography is made reality and the hand of God performs a much different function. But are the hand's motivations entirely altruistic or even sentient? And how much protection can such an alien being as God really give? Human curiosity has a way of getting around limitations, even those in the metaphysical realm. Podcastle is very proud to present The Hand of God by Erica Satifka. Originally published in the March 2012 issue of On the Premises. Erica Satifka lives in Baltimore, Maryland. Her short fiction has appeared in Clark's World Magazine, Idiomancer, and Electric Spec. She very sporadically blogs at ericasatifka.com. Dave Robison is our reader this week, and he's a new voice here at Podcastle, but not a new voice in the podcasting world. He runs a couple of different shows, including the Roundtable Podcast, the show for writers and people who are interested in how writers work, as well as the Protecting Project Pulp, part of the District of Wonders quartet of podcasts that Starship Sofa now belongs to. They feature pulpy stories full of adventure and excitement from writers like Robert E. Howard, Fritz Lieber, and Jack London. We'll link to those in our show notes. Dave's also one of the biggest sweethearts in podcasting, and keep in mind, podcasting's full of sweethearts. So go with God and with shrooms. Enjoy the story. The Hand of God by Erica Satifka From the roof of his house, Andrew could see everything in the town of Pandora. Right below is his yard of wispy yellow grass that breaks at the touch. A little ways down is the Dead Creek, a stinking, mucky place. And above him, always, is the hand of God. Briefly, he trains his flashlight on the underside of the hand, studying the lined gray flesh. Then he stares back toward the outskirts of town, peering through his binoculars at the mushroom farmer's trailer. The farmer makes a drug. Andrew's not supposed to know about the drug, and he certainly isn't supposed to take it. But the farmer's daughter goes to school with all the other kids, so word gets around. He must have mixed up a new batch. The townspeople are lined up all the way back to the old Sunoco station, their headlamps making a broken ant trail in the ever-present dusk. Stupid addicts, Andrew thinks. He's never going to wait in that line. As soon as he grows up, he's going to get out from under here. 
He reaches a hand under his T-shirt and feels at his ribs. Nice and scrawny. That's the way you get out. Andrew! Dinner! He pockets his binoculars and climbs down the rope ladder to his bedroom window and goes down to the dining room. Andrew's father glowers at him over a seven-year-old newspaper borrowed from the town library. You weren't up on that roof again, were you? You know I was. He isn't scared of his father. Oh, leave him alone, his mom says, dishing out a bowl of stew. Potatoes and mushrooms again. The family doesn't have enough to afford hydroponics. He's safe. Nobody dies under the hand of God. Nobody's born, either. He'll leave someday. He eats enough to make his mom happy, then goes off to his room to do his homework. By candlelight, he poses in front of his bedroom mirror, stretching out so thin and lithe. He imagines himself slipping through the finger cracks, or maybe under the hand itself. People like his parents say there aren't any cracks in the hand, that it's as solid and perfect as God himself. But Andrew knows the cracks are there. Maybe he'll send help. Maybe he won't. He wonders what it's like out there. Do they eat nothing but roots and fungus, too? During the day, enough sunlight gets through the minute spaces between God's fingers, so you don't need your flashlight all the time. Andrew pedals his bike to school, dodging the cracks in the pavement. Even if the people of Pandora wanted to fix the roads, there isn't enough concrete for it. Oh well, Andrew doesn't mind. At school, most of the girls and some of the boys are crowded around Delia, the mushroom farmer's daughter. Delia wears the best clothes of anyone in town and always has enough to eat. She even eats meat that comes from a tin. Meat! Andrew doesn't know what that is, really, but it sounds fancy. My daddy let me stay up all last night, Delia says. I had to take care of all your parents when they came to our house to get high. They might hurt themselves. The kids don't say anything. They're all just waiting for an invitation to nibble on Delia's sandwich. Its tangy, unusual odor is unlike any food Andrew's ever eaten. He wonders if it's made out of meat. Delia points to a tiny girl in the front row. You may brush my hair if you want to. Delia's hair is as red as a brick under a full flashlight beam. The kids don't really care about brushing it, but they do care about her lunch and her house. The tiny girl takes Delia's comb and eagerly begins working. Andrew turns and goes into the school. He doesn't care about Delia or her demands. His parents don't take the drug, never have. It's none of his business. Hey, you there. It's her. He turns. What? Do you want to come by my house later? Andrew freezes. Of course he does. Everyone wants to go to the mushroom farmer's house. When the hand of God first descended upon the village of Pandora, he leapt into action, hoarding the best supplies for himself. And the people of Pandora need the farmer's mushrooms to survive, so nobody dares cross him. But Andrew's parents wouldn't like it. He hopes Delia is confusing him with someone else. Uh... She laughs. A sharp, ugly sound. Uh... She motions for the other kids to join in, and they do. Tonight, after school, we'll go together. Andrew doesn't tell his head to nod, but it does anyway. 
Okay, after school. Delia stands up suddenly, causing the tiny girl who is brushing her hair to tumble backwards. The wave of resentment branching from the other kids is almost visible in the grayish daylight. We should all get to class now. The bell rings. All through the school day, Andrew thinks about Delia's house. What did it look like? What would they eat? The few times he had walked or ridden his bike past the mushroom farmer's trailer, he'd been overpowered by the stench of mushrooms. Nobody lived as close to the hand as the mushroom farmer's family. Everyone else regarded it as dangerous, or at the very least, bad luck. But the mushroom farmer had openly flouted the superstition, painting a mural on God's hand, hanging up a sign advertising his wares on God's hand, even once donning a pair of spiked shoes, where he had scavenged those Andrew had no clue, and climbing up, 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 almost to the center. In school, the kids learned practical things like hydroponic farming, weaving, sewing, and construction. Even though the adults expect the hand to lift sooner or later, they had to be prepared if it didn't. Andrew stares out the window. The school sits just under God's ring finger, near the edge of town, and in the dim light Andrew can see the curves and dips of the fingerprint. Andrew was three when the hand descended. It is his sky. After school, Andrew follows Delia to the mushroom farmer's house. The outside of the trailer is painted a glossy red, like Delia's hair. They lean their bikes against the porch and go inside. Delia leads him into the kitchen, dimly lit by a row of candles. Are we going to eat now? Andrew asks. But Delia isn't interested in food. Instead, she makes a beeline for a porcelain jar on the counter. It's in the shape of a cat holding a fish. Want to see something neat? I guess. Delia reaches into the jar and withdraws a small plastic baggie. My daddy makes this. You can have some. He'll never notice. Andrew's never seen it in person, but he knows it's the drug. Are you crazy? I don't want that junk. I'm not a loser. Delia laughs. Everyone in this town is a loser. Andrew's flesh is burning. He doesn't want to be here anymore. I want to go now. Nobody goes until I say they can go, Delia says. She puts the baggie back into the porcelain cat and rescrews the lid. You can go. What does that stuff do anyway, besides make people sick? Andrew shakes his head. I still don't want it. Delia smiles slyly. It takes you outside the hand, so you can see what it's like out there. Then you come back. I don't need that stuff to leave. I can leave any time I want without it. Sure you can, skinny boy. That's why so many people have done it already. She walks him toward the back door. I can do it, he responds lamely. It's a lot better than using drugs. It's healthier. Delia sighs. Why are you so dumb, Andrew? But he can't answer. Delia's already slammed the door in his face. Over the next week, Andrew tries his best to avoid Delia. He doesn't want her father's stupid drug or even any of her meat. 
He concentrates on his studies of first aid techniques and root biology and comes straight home. He doesn't even go up on the roof anymore. Curiosity leads to trouble, that's what his parents say. But still, he can't stop thinking. He read an old book once by someone named Bester about teleportation, going from place to place in the blink of an eye. Is that what the drug does? And do you have to come back? Andrew won't come back when he goes out there, not if he can help it. Delia's full of it. She doesn't know what it does. But he still can't get it out of his mind, and every day he's getting bigger and bigger. That Friday night, Andrew tosses and turns in his bed. He needs a drink of water. As he comes back from the bathroom, he catches his mother slinking into the master bedroom with a guilty frown on her face. She's shaking. All of a sudden, she catches Andrew's eye. Go to bed, son. Just go away. She's wearing her boots. Were you outside? What's going on outside? There's nothing outside. There's nothing anywhere. Go to bed. Andrew usually listens to his parents, but he's going to break their rules. On Monday, he's going to talk to Delia. At recess, he pulls Delia aside and hunkers down with her under the jungle gym. I need to go back to your house. I want to take that drug. I thought you were a good kid who didn't take drugs. She grins toothily, like she's enjoying dragging this out. I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Will you give it to me or not? I don't have any money. First one's free. After that, you have to pay. Oh, I won't need more than one. I'm not coming back. Delia giggles. One-way trip coming up. Yeah, we'll go to my house. And you don't have to be so secretive. All of these kids have already tried it. Andrew's eyes go wide. What? All of them? Well, some of them. She rolls out from under the jungle gym. I'll meet you here after school. In the kitchen, she goes straight for the porcelain cat and takes out a fingertip-sized quantity of the drug, a small brown ball like a clot of dirt. Hold on, I need to put it in water. The water that comes from Pandora's cisterns is almost as brown as the dirt clod. She plops it in the glass and hands the glass to Andrew. Bottoms up. Andrew almost spills it in his haste. He pours the concoction down his throat before he can think too hard about it. He doesn't want to wimp out. Then he falls into a plastic kitchen chair. It takes a minute, Delia says, making as if to check an invisible watch. It doesn't take a minute. It only takes 43 seconds. Andrew clamps his hands over his eyes and screams. The light is so bright, as bright as a case of flashlights. Slowly, he opens his left eye a crack. This is going to take some getting used to. He looks at the ground. The grass bends rather than breaks under the pressure of his soles, and he sits down, dazed. Never has he imagined that the world outside the hand of God was so beautiful. The hand. 
He looks back, wondering what it looks like from the outside. But he must have teleported far away, because there's no mighty wrist plunging from the skies, no cracked gray flesh cupping the valley. They'll be just fine under there, until he can get some help. Picking through the tall grass, Andrew searches for a road or a house. The buzz of insects, he's never seen so many of them, drowns his thoughts until he can barely concentrate. Shielding his eyes with a hand, he looks up at what he now knows to be the sun. Below his feet sounds a crack. He snaps his attention to the ground, to a white stick. Sharp where he's broken it, the stick looks funny, not plastic or wood. And then he knows. Andrew drops the stick. Suddenly, a scream echoes over the vast field of green grass. It's a woman's scream, followed closely by a man's. Andrew hunches down so that they can't find him. Over the tops of the grass, he can see their raw, bloody faces, their sharpened teeth, the smooth expanse of flesh where noses should be. They are not human, or at least, not anymore. I want to go back, he thinks, hands clasped in a prayer. And he does. Delia sits in a kitchen chair, spooning strange-smelling food from a can marked Spam. She puts the can down. So, what did you think? Andrew feels his face contort. His breath goes rapid. What is that? That's what outside is like? Oh, the monsters? Yeah, that's what it looks like now. We lost a war, or maybe we won one. And I don't know if those things are human or not. I've never been out there myself. I don't know why anyone would want to go there. It sucks. Andrew cries. He can't help it. You tricked me. Delia just smiles and picks up the spam can. Andrew runs. He runs out of the mushroom farmer's house, climbs back on his bike, and pedals back to his home. When he gets there, he finds his parents crowded together on the sofa, sharing an old paperback. He tries to go upstairs without being seen, but when he gets to his door, a hand falls on his shoulder. He jumps, remembering the creatures, remembering the bone. Andrew? It's his mother. He just looks back, speechless, his mouth hanging open. You were there. His mother heaves a loud sigh. How did you know? He started crying again, involuntarily. You'll have to keep going back, you know. I hoped it wouldn't come to this. You'll need a weapon. Andrew's mom slips him a long, flat metal tube. When he pushes a button, a thin blade slips out. Don't tell your father. Can we beat them? She shakes her head. No, I don't think so. Unless there are other towns, but I don't know if there are. We can try. Every Friday night we try. It was a very bad idea to go alone. She shakes Andrew hard when she says this to underline her point. Now go to bed. You've had a long day. She releases Andrew's arm. Friday night, Andrew thinks. 
Then we'll beat them. He flicks his pocket knife in and out and slips it in his pocket. And welcome back. I've read and listened to this one quite a few times now, and what I like best about it, and like I suggested in the intro, it poses questions, but it doesn't necessarily give us safe answers. I know for some of you it may feel too open-ended, but for me, not knowing those answers and being left to wonder, well, that's often way more interesting and thought-provoking. Don't give me midichlorians. Don't tell me what the island or even what the smoke monster is. Sometimes the image is way more intriguing to me when it's blurred around the edges. Something I'm not going to blur, at least not intentionally, is this week's feedback for Saladin Ahmed's Iron Eyes and the Watered Down World, read by that dungeon knight of yours, Cheyenne Wright. I think I just made a rhyme. Crap. I hate when I rhyme. Oh well. Our forums seem to really enjoy this sword and sorcery tale, or at least the first 75% of it, depending on who you asked. Let's start off with J.T. Evans, who said, Last time you ran one of Saladin's stories, I asked for the book. Throne of the Crescent Moon was delivered. I'm going to make the same demand now. Where's the book for these characters in this world? Humanist said, The story itself, I like 75.03% of it. I like the big guy's loyalty to his murdered wife. I like the dope fiend priest. I love the bunny warrior. But I didn't like the final scene with the spirit of the dead wife pretending to be the evil spirit that killed her to lure her husband to follow the wimpy boy who was her nephew and her husband's son. Could have just cut that entire speech. The big guy recovering the earring would have been enough and have the three amigos walk down the road for another adventure. But Seeker Pilgrim countered, saying, I was pleasantly caught off guard by the final act, and though others may complain how uncharacteristic it would be for Zok to drop his sword and become a dad, I'd argue that it made sense because of his obvious love for his wife. He made the promise for her sake, not his son's. He even says he's not sure this is what he wants, but it's what he needs to do. Also, who said he has to give up his lifestyle? I picture him teaching Sorgo how to be a man, and in his world that would mean how to fight, winching, and forming lasting friendships. Infinite Monkey said, Loved it. Thank the god of podcasts for bringing back Cheyenne and pairing him with Saladin Ahmed, with a story involving a cranky macho swordsman, a drug-addled priest, and psychotic bunny? Wow, I've begun to enjoy sword and sorcery more as I get older. Maybe I'm doing it backward. Maybe it's the don't-give-a-shit attitude of the main characters. Don't know. Don't really care, but that's that. And uh, Dave here, just to say, I think that's actually my experience with sword and sorcery, too. I didn't read that much of it when I was younger. Not even Conan, and it's been really fascinating and fun getting into it at this age and being able to share it all with you guys. You can let us know what you thought of this week's story by visiting forum.escapeartist.net. We love to hear what you have to think about all the fantasy fiction we feature here. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors and bringing you the best and sometimes shroomiest fantasy fiction week after week. Thank you. And if you can't afford to donate, not a problem, but... Maybe think about blogging, tweeting, writing a review on iTunes, or, you know, wherever you download your podcasts, or even just telling a friend, hey, 
there's this really weird story you should listen to. Thanks for that. Well, that was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm Dave Thompson, and you hear me week in and week out, but I'm only part of the awesome Team Podcastle. My fellow team members are Ann Leckie, our associate editor, Peter Wood, our sound producer, and my glorious co-editor, Anna Schwind. On behalf of all of us, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with a story by Francesca Forrest. Until then, remember... It's only a few more days until Friday night. See you next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Today's quote is from an author I just recently finally fell in love with, the one and only Herman Melville, who said... Methinks we have hugely mistaken this matter of life and death. Methinks what they call my shadow here on earth is my true substance. Methinks that in looking at things spiritual, we are too much like oysters observing the sun through the water, and thinking that thick water the thinnest of air. Methinks my body is but the lees of my better being. In fact, take my body who will. Take it, I say. It is not me.